This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, September 5th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. When the federal government finalized plans to open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil drilling, environmentalists were both at the table in fighting the project wholesale, but also not at the table in terms of having a shot at bidding for those oil leases. Sean Regan, a vice president at the Property and Environment Research Center, argues that even a little injection of property rights into the leasing process would likely mean good things for conservation. The uh, issue of drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge has been on the radar, particularly, I think, of Republicans uh, at least since 2008. Am, am, I, am I wrong in that? Uh, the, the debate over Anwar drilling dates back decades to when uh, Congress authorized um, drilling to take place there. And it's been a political football, you know, through many, many different administrations over the past several decades. Um, and, uh, you know, just now getting to the point of some resolution in terms of direction from Congress about what to do as it relates to drilling in Anwar. This story didn't really make a lot of waves. And I think it maybe it should have, uh, that the Trump administration has finalized plans to allow for the auctioning of oil and gas rights in the heart of Anwar. So from the perspective of people who'd like to prevent that from happening, what what do they see as the big threat? Well, this is, a, this is a wildlife refuge. It's 19 million acres. And the area in question here is a, is a, is a much smaller portion of that larger wildlife refuge. And it, it you know, we, there's still a lot of unknowns. We don't know exactly how much oil uh, there is uh, to be drilled, but this has long been, you know, viewed as one of the, the largest remaining reserves of oil um, in the United States. And so for, for obviously for many decades, it's been a target of folks who would like to see more resource development in this region. Um, but it's also, of course, a, a wildlife refuge and it's um, home to a lot of important habitat for caribou, migratory birds, uh, lots of other species. And um, this is a, mostly an untouched area without roads and w- without any other sorts of, of development in there. So it's certainly been controversial. Um, and you know we're at the point now where Congress has directed the Interior Department to initiate some lease sales over the next several years. Uh, to and this was this dates back to the the 2017 tax reform package, a provision in that bill. Um, tasked the Interior Department with, with, with looking into this and actually conducting a lease sale, which is what we're the point we're at today. So I think you and I have discussed this in different contexts, which is uh, the idea of timber leases uh, on public lands. Anwar is uh, government property. Um, are leases and the, the, these auctions for leases, is that really the best way to go about this? And is it properly uh, respectful of the fact that there are some people who would, frankly, prefer that this didn't happen at all? Yeah, it's a good question, and I think you know the the debate over Anwar in particular has 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 long sort of to us at Perk highlighted the pitfalls of what we call political environmentalism and the benefits of what we call free market environmentalism. And so, if you think about this from a sort of a property rights perspective, the what we often talk about in the Anwar context is imagine what would happen if environmentalists owned Anwar or owned this portion of Anwar. You know what 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 might they do, and how might their behavior be different than we see in this political arena where these decisions are 
are are made from the top down through these political processes that are fraught with you know with with conflict. And so you know what's interesting about Anwar is that uh, you know it's of course been controversial, but you look at a lot of the groups that have that have been opponents of drilling, um, such as the Audubon Society and other groups. And ask what would these groups if they owned the land? How would they act differently? And so, one of the things we've looked at at Perk is what what do these environmental groups do when they own their own land, and how do they behave uh, as it relates to things like oil drilling? And and in some cases, you know, as we've documented, um, the Audubon Society owns this preserve in Louisiana called the Rainy Sanctuary, and the group has actually for decades had done oil drilling on their own lands. And you might ask, well, why would some environmental group who's opposed to drilling in Anwar actually drill on their own land. And I think it demonstrates just how property rights, when there's ownership rights of, this re of the resource, even when it's environmental groups, it fundamentally changes the way that they view the trade-offs associated with different uses or non-uses of their land. And so in the Audubon Society's case in Louisiana, they were able to find ways to conduct drilling operations you know, under strict environmental standards to protect uh, bird habitat and other wildlife habitat, do it at certain times of the year when it wasn't going to affect, you know, nesting birds and, and, and other things like that, but do it in a way where they could earn royalties and use those royalties to, to better protect bird habitat, perhaps in other areas. And in the case of the, the, the Rainy Preserve, um, Audubon reportedly earned you know, $25 million in royalties that they could use to purchase and protect even more land. So the point is that property rights really change the incentives and you know, we like to think about ways that, that you know, even short of full property rights to something like Anwar, how could we inject a little bit more of that kind of thinking and that sort of rational approach to, I think, addressing these trade-offs in the context of something like Anwar? And we might see more sensible environmental outcomes as opposed to these like overly politicized, all-or-nothing outcomes of, you know, you're either it's either drill, baby, drill, or it's save the Arctic. And there's really a more reasonable, I think, middle ground here that if you had a more property rights-based, market-based approach that had something like ownership rights attached to it, that you might see a more sensible approach like that. We've talked about sort of the upside if environmental groups were uh, in charge. Uh, what about the flip side? What if uh, oil companies were in charge of uh, this land or owned this land or had certain rights uh, over this land? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think you know the same holds true that ownership rights force groups to confront the trade-offs associated with different uses of the land and face the full opportunity costs of their actions. And so even when it comes to the flip side, when if it's an energy company, say, that owns, the, the, uh, owns ANWR or owns the rights to, to ANWR and those rights can be transferred to even conservation uses, then they do face those trade-offs. Um, and, you know, oil markets are, it's an interesting uh, issue as it relates to Anwar right now and that it's happening right now, this leasing process is happening now when oil markets are are uh, in turmoil, there's a su worldwide supply glut, prices are low. At the time that this leasing was, uh, that Congress instructed the Interior Department to to do this leasing, the estimate was that this would generate a billion dollars in revenue to offset tax cuts. was the, was the purpose. Now those estimates are, you know, some groups have said it, it may be as little as twenty million dollars that could be generated from 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 this sale, um, given those market dynamics at the moment. So, so so even in the case of an energy company, say that own the rights to 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 this resource, you might see some. So very interesting and different outcomes than they sort of all or nothing drill or conserve, because there's certainly a lot of value 
in conservation value in this landscape. You see that in the amount of effort in the political arena, in the legal arena, as it relates to litigation that might come and has already happened as, uh, in the Anwar context. And so there's clear value here. And now, could those re- could those dollars by environmentalists be channeled in a more market based way to say, you know, acquire some portion of the rights or some acquire some agreement where uh, drilling could be done in a very environmentally sensitive manner? You could you could imagine a lot of interesting contractual market based arrangements that would conserve portions or all of Anwar, even if it was controlled by an energy company. What are the incentives typically faced by environmental groups in this kind of situation? It seems like uh, their incentive is is very clearly, uh, we need to signal uh, to our members that we are fighting this, not in part, but in whole. Uh, and presumably that is at, based on uh, the land that uh, these kinds of organizations already do own, that it is rooted in, well, there's no there's no benefit to us financially to to not oppose this wholesale. Right. Under political environmentalism, you know, the incentives for for compromise are, are practically zero. I mean, groups don't they don't face the, the direct costs of their actions. You know, one side wins and the other side loses. Um, I think it's interesting when you look at this case study of Audubon's privately owned preserve in Louisiana, you know, they don't want to have, they certainly don't want to have a bad outcome as it relates to drilling to the extent that they you know, conducted drilling there. Um, so they have every incentive in the world to do that in the right way because they don't want to upset their members uh, who, who are not going to want to see, you know, oil spills or, or uh, resource extraction done in, a, in an environmentally damaging way. And so they have, you know, all the reason in the world to get it right. And, and the other example in this is not just in Louisiana, but Audubon has a, has a similar reserve in Michigan that they've done um, drilling on, or at least they've done out just beyond the boundaries of the refuge, they've done this slant drilling to access the resources beneath the refuge and earn royalties as a result of that, that would enable them to do even more, achieve even more conservation elsewhere and do it in a way that has little or no impact on the actual, within the boundaries of the refuge. You know, the context of timber, the fact that they were auctioning off, I believe, timber leases, and, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, environmentalists were not at the table. That is, that is, you could, you could buy a lease, uh, win your bid, but there was nothing that uh, compelled the government or compelled the purchasers of those leases to pay a price that environmentalists thought that they ought to pay in order to uh, undertake that lease. Is that true uh, in Anwar as well? That is, can environmentalists buy these leases and then not use them? Yeah, the short answer is no. Under under current law and and, and regulation governing the leasing of, of federal lands, uh, generally no. And, that, and that's that's where you know we would like to see more of these sort of market mechanisms that open up the bidding process to encompass not just the extractive use value of these resources, but perhaps even the non-use conservation value of these resources. So short of full property rights, which as we discussed, you know, provide all the right incentives to balance in a rational way, resource development and conservation. You know, short of that, you could you know, you could have a leasing system that at least opens up to other uses like conservation and allows conservationists to bid 
against energy developers. And you alluded to an example of a timber sale, and that's something that at least on some state lands in the West is is, is something that is allowed to happen in certain circumstances. And we've seen when those institutions allow for conservationists to bid, they often do, and sometimes they win. And that happened here in our backyard uh, in Bozeman recently, where a group uh, that opposed a timber sale on some state land outbid the timber company. And they now have the right to preserve and keep the trees standing for 25 years. And so while it's not full property rights, it is a market-like mechanism to uh, reflect the full suite of values that are associated with any landscape, whether that be for extractive use or non-extractive conservation values. And that's something that you know, we, that with reform could happen in this Anwar context. And it may, you know, taxpayers may benefit in this case, which as we mentioned, taxpayers don't stand to perhaps benefit as much as they, uh, as, as was hoped initially when Congress initiated this leasing program in Anwar. Sean Regan is vice president of research at the Property and Environment Research Center in Bozeman, Montana. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.